0: This is Michael Harlan Turkell, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, roughly... Noon to like 12.50, something like that. We
3: call it Noonish.
2: Noonish. Noonish-ish. Uh, joined, as usual, with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah? We got Jack in the Engineering Booth. Hello. Thank goodness. I don't like to do the show without Jack in the Engineering Booth. Oh, thanks. You know what I mean? I know. And we have a, a special guest with us uh, today. We have uh, Darren from Meld. Meld. Now... Meld, although it sounds like a delicious grilled cheese corporation, is not. Do you like grilled cheese sandwiches?
4: I do. What's not to like?
2: Exactly. But well, I figure if you have a company named Meld, then you got to like grilled cheese sandwiches. Otherwise, it's like, you know, it's going to be problems. Uh, but anyway, they do not, in fact, manufacture... You know what's a bad name for... No offense for a grilled cheese sandwich corporation. Cheese Boy. Yeah. Isn't that the one that's on I-95? Mm-hmm. Cheese Boy. Mm-hmm. First of all, stop there. No. First of all, like... Why are you, why are you making it a gendered thing? Like, why are you going gender on your grilled cheese sandwich? Grilled cheese sandwich is a non-gendered delicious item, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I've passed by not staffed only by boys. First of all, you want, like, an adult making your grilled cheese sandwiches anyway. I mean, like, we do have labor laws. I'm just saying, someone can call in and convince me that I'm wrong, but I just think it's kind of not a good name. Whereas, like... Not a grilled cheese corporation, but like Fuddruckers is too hilarious not to like the name of, right? I can't believe that like there's millions of dollars invested in a corporation called Fudruckers mm-hmm. that makes food for people. You ever been to a Fuddruckers? I have. How, what's it like?
4: Uh, it's uh, sort of. Burgers where you top them yourself, and most people put uh, way too many condiments and ruin the burgers.
2: So it's like a free fixings bar a la like Roy Rogers back exactly. in the
4: 70s. Exactly.
2: You remember the Roy I Rogers? love
4: Roy Rogers. Free
2: fixings bar, baby. Yeah. So what I would do, you know, my Roy Rogers trick with the low quality salad bar ingredients they had for the free fixings was I would pile it high to ruin the burger, like you say, but then I would move it aside and then I would have a salad with my burger. I would yeah. take the toppings back off of the burger. And then yeah, had there are all sit. kinds
4: of uh, kinds of good tricks. When I was in grad school, we used to uh, eat lunch at this uh, terrible cafeteria on campus, and it would come with a little side salad. But if you put the dressing in the bottom of the little bowl first, and then piled everything up on that, it would stick together. And then you'd go to the table and flip it over, and you'd have like you know five times the salad anyone else would. Uh,
2: that's some smart business, and and that that friends and listeners is the kind of thinking that uh, is going to bring to your kitchen in the near future Meld. Now, Meld, not being a grilled cheese corporation, what they do, and I'm actually, like, uh, frankly, uh, excited to see it up because we have one here, is that it's the knob that automatically turns your gas stove range rather up. Can it do stoves too?
4: Yeah, it, it does electric. It's, it's not quite as perfect uh, as it is on gas, but anything that's got a knob, it can turn. Uh, Robert, you can do ranges
2: and ovens, gas or electric? Correct. Anyway, it it turns the knob for you so that you can have adequate uh, temperature control. We had them on the phone, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, and some of the stuff I thought was interesting was, uh, you know, uh, as more and more users use it, uh, they'll be able to write more and more interesting algorithms like a rice cooker algorithm or uh, all sorts of fun stuff. Because once you... Once you have computers controlling everything, you know, not only will they take over the world and turn us into their slaves instead of the other way around, but you can do interesting things like turn your gas range into a rice cooker.
4: Exactly. Yeah. And so what we've got here is we've got one mounted on a little portable butane burner. Uh, No butane involved uh, at this point. Oh, there's no butane on it? Uh, No. Uh, Jack uh, kind of vetoed that given the uh, confines. What
2: the the, hell, dude? These are rated for indoor (laughs) cooking. You know, I just had the same freaking problem. I have to do a freaking demo in uh, London in like a week and a half. Right, Stas? Mm -hmm. And I just got a text today. We can't get. I will read the text in its entirety, just because of how irritating. No, I'm not going to say who's involved because I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus specifically. But I had the same problem when we were—I was in London a couple of weeks ago, where no one wants to get liquid nitrogen. And here's it. Okay, our issue with uh, is with supplier delivery of liquid nitrogen and storage and health and safety issues in a live show environment. Uh, it's not even the one that was. Uh, I really need to know the details of what you'll be doing and order any ingredients you need. And, and here's what it says. Liquid nitrogen is possible, but we need more details for risk assessment and method statement. If you could tell me more about your demo and had a video you could send, we need to answer such questions as, how do we ensure liquid nitrogen has evaporated from the glass, etc. You look at it. <laughs> we dump out the glass and we look at it. Furthermore, when you add a liquid to the glass that had liquid nitrogen in it,
4: if there is liquid nitrogen
2: present, it will continue to smoke.
4: You know, I've, I've been to Booker and Dax. I've seen them manage the uh, liquid nitrogen and the glass problem pretty, pretty well.
2: Yeah, the only person that I'm, I'm aware of that was injured by the a customer, that was injured by the use of liquid nitrogen, the liquid nitrogen was intentionally placed in the glass and handed to her.
3: Yeah, that was weird.
2: Int- intentionally placed in the glass and handed to her. And all of the UK is like on flip doodles about using LN... Right? It's a completely valid technique to use it. And they're all going freaking pretzel because some jackwad intentionally poured liquid nitrogen into some lady's drink. It's nuts.
4: Yeah, well you know oh there's all kinds of things we use that uh, have created a, a problem when misused but when used properly produce great results right
2: yeah you know i
3: got to put a caller through who's been patiently waiting let's put that thought on pause all
2: right but i'm going to make hammers and bricks illegal cuz people hit each other with them sometimes caller you're on the air caller you're on the air hey i can't hear you man oh, oh hey I, hey yeah can you hear me now i can hear you a little bit yeah all right what's going on
1: Hey, I'm a biodynamic uh, CSA farmer down in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, which is in the eastern panhandle just outside of Washington, D.C., and uh, the reason I'm calling you is, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the uh, old-line CSA people, the original grassroots CSA people, are uh, having a pretty hard time nowadays. In the D.C. area, uh, uh, those of us who hold to the original standards of CSA, which is a Soil farm and a group of people gathered around the farm to get food of a quality that's not being produced by the open market system. Right. are um, being beat out by um, well out, outright uh, commercial vegetable distributions, CSAs that aren't even organic, CSAs that don't have a farm or a farmer, uh, aggregators, which are things put together by the USDA that scoop up a bunch of crops from uh just uh, I guess commercially oriented farms put them out in uh, share bags like a CSA does, but that's kind of all beside the point. Uh, I've, I've been doing CSA since uh, I think uh, 1990 was our first CSA and um, it's uh, hard to hold on to a community in the DC area because it's such a there's so much turnover in the area and so much uh, house flipping and so people in neighborhoods right. change rather rapidly. But uh, the reason I'm I'm calling you, Dave, is because I've been listening to your program for a really long time, and I realize you have a a really uh, great understanding of how the restaurant businesses work. And uh, there's myself and several other farmers out here in West Virginia. They're probably going to go belly up this season if we don't find an outlet other than CSA for our produce. And uh, being tied to the land, try, still trying to support the couple dozen CSA shares I've sold this year. Instead of our our CSA has been up to 350 shares some years. Uh, I think it's 24 this year. Oh, my God. Um, I, I wonder if there's some easy way for farmers who, like I said, are tied to the land, running around with irrigation hoses for six hours a day and whatnot, to contact Chefs who are interested in very flavorful local foods. Well, first this of all, give me... For the, me, it would be the D.C. area, but...
2: Give, give, uh, the, na- give the name of your, of your farm in case anyone in D.C. is looking to, you know, contact you. What's the, what's the name of your farm?
1: It's Fresh and Local CSA. Right. It is, it is uh, in local harvest. It is uh, on the web. It's freshandlocalcsa.com. And uh, it's uh, 15 years on this soil with biodynamic techniques. All the produce is outrageously flavorful because of all of the uh, minerals that are in the soil and available to the plants now.
2: And how's the crop year looking this year? Were you hit by the same like, late, uh, late kind of spring that we got up here? Are you guys doing all right for, for crops?
1: <clears throat> um, well, we're okay with crops, but everything was late this year. And it, and it was, I don't know how it was for you. But, for us, it went from freezing nights to
2: ninety degree
1: days in the same week, I believe
2: yeah, it was ping ponging like crazy i didn't it 's never, never seen anything quite like it but um, well, let me say this: I think that you know New York has a um, a fantastic model in our green market, and uh, you know for a long time now. Uh, the, the the advantage of the green market, right, is that you get kind of what I like to call a critical mass of suppliers together. Now, the average person on the street thinks of the green market as a place that they can go buy uh, veg, but, you know, all the chefs I know – think of the green market as a place where they can interact directly with the farmer as supplier right and the advantage from the farmer's standpoint is obviously they know in advance that they have to bring x y and z because they know the chefs are going to going to buy it because they have communication prior to them arriving at the at the farm and Believe it or not, I think it's fairly efficient for uh, the farmer because they – either they or you know, someone that they're having doing their, their, their truck for them really only has to give up one day, you know what I mean, uh, to right. go and interact with uh, the chefs. And the chefs, it's very easy for them because they know that – let's say you grow fantastic peppers. Right, and then uh, the, you know, they'll get the peppers from you. But let's say they know that they really like the you know the purple basil from some other farmer. They can go get that, and so you get a critical mass together. The chef can make the run to the green market. Here, the main ones are, are uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. I mean, we're a huge market, but you know what I mean. But even one or two of those days would be enough to sustain it. But I think what you what you need is a critical mass of like minded. Uh, farmers do you I mean do you have a structure like that in d c uh, for for a green market the way that we we operate because I think that 's really the method that 's allowed a lot of farmers here in uh, New Jersey and the Hudson Valley really kind of stay connected with the chef community
1: yeah well there are several really good markets in d c but they 've been closed to new farmers for a lot of years huh and so that's uh that 's the problem
2: huh it 's a really interesting problem you know i 'd love to hear kind of uh and, you know, and I haven't heard that flip side of it either. Like, I don't know whether there's a lot of farmers who would, you know, be itching to supply New York chefs, but can't because they're getting shut out of our green market system. Specifically, the Union Square Green Market is the big one we have here, which is, you know, on 14th Street. Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of others that chefs also go to, but that's the kind of main one. But I, I you know, it's a really, really interesting question. I think it's something that needs to be kind of, uh, it needs to be kind of addressed. And I would encourage, you know, any. Chefs in the D.C. area to, you know, reach out to you, anyone that's like listening. You know what? what you know, you have something? Yeah, to
4: do? I, I mean, I I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, just giving a perspective from Seattle, which is where I'm from, um, you know, Pike Place Market, it's 100 and something years old. It's kind of the big famous one that, that people know about. But. Um, but there are a lot of other markets and and i think you know if you're looking for where the chefs are going in, in seattle at least it's not there it's probably you know more like the ballard uh, market on sundays and and there are a few others but uh you know they've they've expanded to the point that uh even though Pike place may be shut out to to new vendors um you know some of these other markets around town are uh, are available and i think you know you're you're more likely to see uh, Seattle chefs probably walking around and sampling what's uh, what's available in Ballard than you are at Pike Place these days. Right. I mean, one thing I know for sure is that chefs will chefs will seek out
2: and go through great pains and trouble to seek out the good ingredients. However. Once they seek it out, the supply chain to them needs to be relatively convenient because it needs to be it needs to be able to be gotten to the restaurant like on a kind of a regular or semi regular basis. Now they'll deal with you know they'll deal with uh, I don't have any potatoes this week you know they you know the, whatever we got if we had a fail crop failure they'll deal with this you know what I mean but it's it's more like you know they can't drive you know fifty miles to go to go get their to go get their stuff because they're simultaneously getting from a bunch of different suppliers. So, I mean, I think it's just a question of figuring out how you can, uh, you know, gather, like, enough, like, like like-minded farmers in, you know, in some sort of new venue. And it doesn't have to be, like, super organized or even super nice, as long as the chefs know that it's going to be there and know that they can count on sending, like, one person uh, over there, and they can and they can pick up what they need from like four or five suppliers that they 've um developed a relationship with um, but sh- you know one thing I know about chefs, at least the people that like I deal with and I know is that they are monsters for uh quality and they love absolutely love having personal relationships with farmers love it you know oh, yeah
4: completely agree, yeah
1: yeah. So let me throw in there. I I don't have any problem driving down to DC if we're talking about some sort of scale.
2: Right. Yeah. It's just a question of making of like making it of ha- of like you know germinating the idea, planting the seed, and like reaching that critical mass. I mean, there's going to be the the real problem is is that either way, from the chef's side and from the farmer side, there's going to be like a time period where everyone's sucking wind trying to get enough. Uh, enough of a critical mass to make it worthwhile for everyone, uh, and I mean, I hope someone in D.C., you know, hears this, or you know, I mean, you know, you know, if you're calling someone else and has like some sort of, uh, uh, and you know, and you know, Jack, this is something that Heritage Radio could take on as a as a problem too, because you know, a lot of people uh, on this network are interested in this kind of problem as well.
3: Yeah, hundred percent.
2: Yeah. Why don't you leave your information with Jack, and then we'll um, we'll try to see if we have anyone that um, is more of a specific e- expert in this. But uh, yeah,
3: absolutely. So info at heritageradionetwork.org org is going to be the best way because we're going to drop the call and uh, go to another caller. But definitely shoot us an email, and we will stay in touch.
2: All right. Thanks so much okay. for calling. It's an interesting subject that we, ha- that we haven't addressed here on the radio. All right. Course. Thanks so much. Um, all right. Cool. Thanks, oh, Jack. So. So back to Mel to have one. Oh, we have another caller? Is the second caller on the line? Oh, caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Rob. I'm calling because I'm looking to set up a draft soda system. Right. And I wanted to know what the things... Well, you're cutting in and out. I heard you're setting up a draft soda system and you want to know certain things, and then when you actually said what the certain things <laughs> was, you cut out. Sorry, I, I started to. Yeah. Um, uh, oh my goodness! One second. Like it's literally like I hear the word specifically, and then all of the actual specifics are trailing off.
3: Yeah, give us a ring back if you get.
2: Uh, wait, wait. Are you there? Uh, yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Cell service is a is a is a wretched thing, is it not? All right. So okay. So what what are the specific problems you're worried about? Um, I'm looking to set up a premix system where I'll be running uh, a root beer syrup that I make. Right. 20 ingredient uh, root beer syrup that has a lot of uh, solids and spices. Right. Mm. Ooh, Ooh, we're so close. We're so close. So close. Premix system with root beer. All right, listen. I can't hear what your actual questions are, but you get. Like you can call back with the questions or I'll tell you some of the problems with root beer. Root beer is known for the world over by anyone that's ever made it to be the absolute hardest thing to clean out of your lines, right? So like if you're doing, uh, if you're doing a corny keg with, uh, with root beer, like you need to throw all of the rubber in your tank needs to be thrown away if you want to switch flavors, all of it. You know what I mean. So you got to throw away the ring gasket. Uh, even I know some people replace uh, the uh, the sealing parts of the uh, of the ball lock valves because they say that anything that is even mildly absorbent will absorb flavors from the root beer. This includes the polyethylene tubes that you use uh, in, into your cold plate. Uh, I know that you can wash the actual cold plate out, but it takes kind of a lot uh, to do. I'm assuming these are the kind of problems you might be having. A now, I'll address another problem you might be having. If you're using, so the, the answer there is just you know dedicate a system to root beer. You know what I mean? Dedicate a corny keg to root beer. Uh, Dedicate. Remember, I'm a huge advocate of two cold plate circuits for every flavor, not one. Two. So I would always get a cold plate that has at least twice as many circuits as you have flavors. And the reason for that is twofold. One, the extra trip through the – and this is going to address the second problem that you might be having with root beer. The uh, – Second trip through the uh, cold plate gives it a longer line, and that longer line uh, tends to slow it down a little bit and cause less foam out on the on the on the output. Um, the other problem, the other thing it solves, is it gets it colder, and getting it colder by a good chunk, by several degrees, uh, also reduces your foam out on the output, and plus makes it colder. Which, duh, do you want your root beer warm, stars? Do you like root beer? Oh, wow, good. I like it too. Uh, What's not to like? Exactly. Much like grilled cheese. In fact, root beer and grilled cheese might go well together. Anyway, um, so... um, the other, the other problem you're going to have is uh, with foaming. So anytime you're making your own root beer flavors uh, with, you know, uh, tree and bark pieces, these things tend to foam like a Looney Tune. They're really foamy, and in fact, foam is one of the characteristics of root beer. A foamy mug of root beer. But the problem is, is you have to keep it somewhat in line. And I would not suggest adding, uh, you know, um, like silicone derivatives. Um, anti-foaming agents just because I haven't found them really to work, at least in alcoholic beverages. I mean, they'll kill foam maybe in a glass, but they're not going to kill, not, I don't think it's going to cause your foam out problems on the thing. I think what your main issues are with foaming is realize you are going to have some foaming. Then, instead of, you have to get a very good pre-mix soda valve. I recommend the ones that CM Becker makes, but, you know, you can get, uh, and by the way, kudos to you for doing premix because I think most post-mix soda sucks. But, like, uh, Anyway, so I would get a very good valve uh, by Becker. It's going to have like, a very long in the back torpedo-shaped compensator that's going to gently take it from uh, the pressure in the tube to atmospheric pressure, and it's going to save you a lot of your foam out. Uh, problems. Um, like I say, cold is going to solve your foam out problems, but also clarity. So, if you don't have a centrifuge, which I'm assuming you don't, centrifuge is going to knock out a lot of your particulates and really help here. But I would just take the trouble to really filter your uh, bark uh, stuff through, like, you know, the finest uh, uh, strainers that you have, like coffee, even if it takes uh, a million years. And eventually, I would get a centrifuge because it can spin all the particulate matter out, and that's really going to solve a lot of your foaming problems. I'm assuming you had one of those two problems. If you didn't, call me back, and uh, and, and, and we'll talk about it. And, Jack, should we come back right after the commercial break with our demonstration of milk?
3: No. Let's squeeze one more call who's been waiting and then go to break.
2: All right, caller, you were on the air.
1: Uh, hi, I have got a question about acids in draft cocktails. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, I'm sorry, not draft, but I want to. I want to carbonate in and bottle some cocktails. Sure. But all the suggestions, all suggestions you have in liquid intelligence require uh, fresh lime juice. Okay. And as we know, storing fresh lime juice makes me the devil. Yes. So I'm I'm curious about acid alternatives that will bottle well and, and, and keep.
2: All right. I'll give you a couple. I'll give you a couple of suggestions. And uh, this one, uh, you know, I hadn't really thought of by the time I I wrote the book, but you know, I like fresh lime juice. I also kind of like lime cordial, right? And lime cordial, you know, so and and literally at the bar, what I what we do to make the lime cordial is I take the leftover clarified lime juice that we have uh, and then I boil it with uh, sugar and a couple of peels of lime and right away the cordial is good and it actually ages uh, after a couple of weeks. I think it's even like a little bit better. And so that's a stable acid source. Now, it doesn't taste like fresh lime, right? So it's not fresh lime flavor. But it's still good flavor. But it's still good flavor. It's different, than, and, and it takes a little bit of an education, because someone who's looking to have a fresh lime flavor, if you give them a cordial flavor, they're like, this tastes like cordial. And you're like, yes, but cordial tastes good. You know what I mean? It's the in-between stuff that doesn't taste good. Another option is you can uh, bolster. So I'm I'm a huge fan of including actual citrus in uh, in the drinks because as opposed to just acids so you can do some cordial and then bolster it with some uh acids like a citric uh malic blend um right some acid combinations especially ones that are barely soluble so like if you make the champagne acid from liquid intelligence which is a uh a mixture of um it's a three percent um a 3% lactic acid and 3% tartaric acid blend, like that actually blend at that acidity tends to throw crystals, uh, you know, because it's kind of at the limit of it of the solubility of some of that stuff. And I don't know why, but maybe that's why when you carbonate with champagne acid, you tend to get foamy drinks. Something about that the lactic uh, tartaric blend causes foamy drinks. And also, when you're bottling something car- uh, carbonated, like I've noticed certain... Certain drinks like Campari, the bitterness is not stable when bottled under acidic conditions. I don't know why. I've never, you know, I've never asked uh, someone with a mass spec to look at it, so I don't know why. But it, it you know, it's definitely true. So, you know, I would I would start with... Um, augmented citrus so you can use like uh, clarified orange juice, tastes terrible, not like terrible, tastes like Sunny D, it tastes like Tang, right? It has all of its character stripped. Right. But you can take that and bolster it with citric and malic and you can have a very nice citric, uh, you know, citrus flavor that will last for a while. Or if you do cordials and you can augment cordials, like I say, with acid to bolster the freshness level of it by increasingly boosting the acidity. Higher, so you use less of the cordial, and it is stable as far as I can tell for a long time.
1: Great. Are there any non-citric um, things I should look at, like you know, just, just things that aren't citrus at all?
2: Sure. So I mean, like a, any any sort of juice uh, can be bolstered, can have its acidity bolstered, right? So um, to kind of greater or lesser effect. The trick with it is is uh, is, is is figuring out what acids you're going to add and not adding adding so much that they turn kind of uh, fake, right? But you can bolster grape juice. I mean, I tend to like things that have characteristics, that have like a character, because this way, when you bolster the acidity of that, like it, it helps to like if the fruitiness is there, the actual fruitiness from fruit is there. The acidity doesn't. Taste fake, whereas it can taste more like a soda-based acidity, like an actual like a, a flavor, like an, just a, it could taste more like an added acidity if there isn't some sort of natural fruit there to back it up. If you want to go dry, obviously right. the cola acid, the acid that's used in colas is phosphoric acid. I would say that you you know. Um, It's one of the few acids that doesn't kind of scale directly weight for weight. You know, you need to use a little bit less of the phosphoric acid. Uh, And it's typically sold in very concentrated solutions. So I would take it down, like you you can buy it as like 85% uh, phosphoric acid solution, and I would take it down to like six or less and then start mixing with it at those lower levels because Stas doesn't like the phosphoric acid, right? Are you a cola head? Like, do you like cola? Yeah, see so like mild, like a mild amount of phosphoric acid. But like usually, when bartenders try to add phosphoric acid to a drink, they hit it too hard, and you don't like that intense, dry. It's an intensely dry, non-fruity acidity. Um, but yeah, give those, give those, a give those a shot. Great, thanks. That's very helpful. All right, good luck with it. Let us know, uh, tweet on in if you get any good results. I will. Bye. All right, back, back from the break with Meld on cooking mm-hmm. issues.
3: Out there, It's Steve Jenkins. I'm with Fairway Markets. White Leghorn. Red Wattle. Bourbon Red. Navajo Churro. Well, these aren't names you're likely to hear at a Fairway butcher counter or any other counter today, but before the rise of factory farming, you would have. And at Heritage Foods USA, you still do. Heritage Foods USA exists to promote genetic diversity. Small family farms and a fully traceable food supply... You see, we believe the best way to help a family farmer is to buy from them. And Heritage Foods is honored to represent a network of family farmers and artisanal producers whose work presents an immeasurable gift to our food system and to biodiversity. The meat we celebrate, whether it's heritage turkey, Japanese steaks, Berkshire pork, or Navajo churro lamb chops, is the righteous kind from healthy animals of sound genetics that have been treated humanely and allowed to pursue their natural instincts. It's a simple fact. Animals raised according to this philosophy taste better. And as we like to say, you have to eat them to save them. Visit us at heritagefoodsusa.com for more information.
2: I would love to get... Steve Jenkins and Alec Baldwin in the same room and have them have, like, a voice-off. Wouldn't that be awesome?
3: Alec, if you're out there...
2: Get him right here on the show. That's right. Alec, if you're out there, let me see you dance. For those of you who are friend, uh, who like the uh, Prince's Black album, do you ever, you ever listen to that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Bob George is an intensely weird song. If you're out there, let me see you dance. Okay, so, uh, so let's look at the meld. I wish it had some freaking flame on it, Jack.
4: Well, What's anyway, it's... Uh, Jack! It, yeah?
2: Why do you not let him have the butane in here, man? Listen.
4: <laughs> it's Listen. Uh, it's, this, not, it's not, not my the, restaurant. This not the first place that has uh, has not let me use butane.
2: It's not my restaurant, you know? I can't... Yeah, all, right. all right. Let's, let's, let's see it. And uh, Stas, can you make flame noises? No.
4: So uh, so first off, I've I've got the knob mounted here on this uh, little butaneless burner. So you can't see it. What we have
2: here is a a butane picnic burner, which strangely enough, if you actually read the NFPA uh, fire codes, uh, this is rated as a fine piece of indoor cooking equipment because the butane canister is uh, contained and it uh, sits on a table and can't be knocked over. I've gone through these codes a million times when I was doing the Sears All Work. But anyway, just saying.
4: Okay. So so what I'm going to do now is is just the the sort of First manual thing, so you can see the knob turned itself. All all I'm doing is doing it the old-fashioned way, and actually uh, just telling it to go to a certain percentage. But what I'm going to do now instead is I'm going to set it. uh, I'm going to tell it, okay, I'd like to to go to a temperature of 35 degrees C, and uh, that's not very warm, but it's warmer than it is in here. Uh, It's 26 right now, so I'm going to touch the uh, the end of this. And that uh, this is the temperature probe that goes in the pot or pan, and the temperature is holding the he's holding the probe in his hand, and we're going to look at the knob, and it's going to it's going to turn on. Right. So as the uh, it's actually on high now because it's trying to raise the temperature, but as my body heat actually raises the temperature of this, it's going to start turning it down because it's thinking, oh, I've got the gas on, uh, and it's making the temperature go up. So there it goes. You see it's starting to turn itself down uh, as we approach the target temperature. And is it auto-tuning now, or what's it doing? Exactly. So it's, it is, what it's trying to do is get to the temperature I want without overshooting, because if it overshoots, it's much harder than even if it turns the gas essentially to zero to come down in temperature. It's much easier to go up. So it's, it's biased to not overshoot, and to make these very small adjustments, right? Um, but
2: does it learn your
4: range, or is it constantly learning? It, it both. It, it's it learns your range to some degree, but also if you put you know a big twelve quart stockpot on there, it's going to behave a little differently than uh, than a little you know half quart saucier.
2: Now, how how long is it going to continue to theoretically dump gas into the air with no flame before it it's like
4: no? Well, at this point, it's uh, my my body heat's not actually quite quite uh, hot enough for it, so I'll turn down the target temperature a little bit, and now it's actually has has turned it uh, all the way down, so for for demo purposes actually these butane burners are are sort of the worst of all possible worlds but but it also stresses a system which i really like cuz if we can handle this we can handle anything the reason it's the worst case is because from 0 to full blast on this is a rotation of only about 40 degrees ah. right whereas most ranges you're it's 180 maybe even 270 and so the precision that we have to get is is much higher on this um, so it's actually running at, at now 4%. It thinks it's one degree shy of, of its target.
2: So and that, like, will this thing light, or do you still need to manually go through the click, 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 poof?
4: You still have to do that manually. So what happens is when you start up the app and, and choose a recipe, uh, before any cooking step, what it's going to do is it's going to say, turn it on. And you turn your knob, click, 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 like you said, it, It goes and then leave it at any temperature or any heat level you want. You then hit a button on the app that says, okay, it's on. I'm handing you control the app will then say, oh, I see it's at 47%. But actually, at the moment, I'd like it to be at 92%, and it'll move it there. And then it will continue adjusting uh, throughout the the whole execution of that step of the recipe. And then for certain recipes, like, um, for example, we've got a a caramel recipe. There's a video of it on our website where you want to caramelize the sugar, but then you want to bring the temperature down, add the cream and butter. and so It, It knows that there are different target temperatures for different steps. And as you move through the recipe and and do the various steps Uh, it will adjust the temperature it's sort of like you never have to touch the knob someone is there doing it for you you're putting ingredients in taking things out and so on
2: Um, when are you you shipping these guys October yeah yeah I'd love to mess with one
4: yeah we we'd uh, we'll we'll do our best to try and uh, get you one uh, a little sooner if we can but uh, yeah some really cool techniques that that we are working on um so, for example, you know, people I think a lot of times confuse precision temperature cooking with low temperature cooking because, you know, people are familiar with, or people who listen to this show certainly are, are familiar with circulators and, and what they do. Um, circulators uh, obviously don't work particularly well over 100C because. Uh, yeah, the, unless the,
2: you use oil, but they're right. no longer, no longer spec'd out to use oil. Exactly.
4: Whereas with meld, we can put a pot of oil on there. Um, and you can do all kinds of things ranging from, you know, relatively low temperature stuff. So we've been playing around a little bit with, with poaching things in oil around like 120 C. Um, and then you can go, obviously, all the way up to, you know, frying things at 350, 375, 400 I mean, The, the, the
2: classic, everyone's always wanted to put a circulator for years. Can you put a circulator fry? It's like, well, the metal ones. They'll yeah. handle the temperature, but they're crap at frying. Because yeah. they they're, they're even if they had the power... They're not designed to have the recovery rate that a fryer needs. Could, could you tell this guy, like, could you – in other words, could you go for, for minimized recovery time but still not completely blast out your oil? Like, could you have, like, a middle – I mean, tube burner fryers are so freaking good because yeah. they have such a high surface area to heat out. This is why everyone at home, like, I'm sorry. You're just not going to have as good of fried stuff as someone who has a tube fryer. You're just not. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not gonna happen. You don't have a cold zone. You don't have to you can do good fried stuff, but you're not gonna have you're not gonna have all night good fry the way that you can in
4: a tube fryer. But can you Yeah, the the key for uh, we we can do a really good job. The key is not overloading and that that's the key in, you know, any frying application, right? If you if you have a two quart pot of oil and you dump in, I don't know, twenty chicken wings, you know, it's gonna be hard for even your 15,000 BTU burner on your stove at home to to recover from that quickly. Yeah. Um, and even if you could, even if you could, you don't have the surface area of pan
2: to oil to not locally. So like exactly. my, my burners exactly. at home... They're kind of stupid. The high, you know. They're they're way higher than they're supposed to be because the knucklehead that installed the stove didn't put the regulator on it, right? Yeah. So, you know, I can. I it looks like a jet engine when I turn on my burners, which is which actually is great irritating. for a lot of things. It is, but like it's irritating because um, I get a lot of flame out on the low end, so it makes yeah. it hard to do kind of like the more delicate things. Not that I like to do delicate things, Stas, Don't worry, but like I'm yeah. saying, you know, I what have
4: I, mean? I have exactly the same thing on my oven at home, which is which is great. It's I have this. Vintage sort of 1990 oven that it's a double wall oven. The top one is digital and the bottom one's analog. I think because, you know, digital controls were too expensive then to actually put it on both ovens. And the analog one on the bottom, the knob goes to 500 like most uh, home oven knobs do. But the little catch that makes it stop there is gone. Ah. And you can just keep on turning it. And so I can actually crank it up to around seven hundred for pizza take that safety <laughs> you know
2: what I did that i, I shouldn 't mention, but I literally put a uh, I literally put a thermostat bypass on my uh, on my oven, so my, just like th- thermostat thermostat, but here was the rule right I had to make it such that like any normal so my last oven in my last place when you went there. Uh, People are like, I don't want to cook in your oven. Your oven's too complicated. I have to know how to program a Wattlow PID controller to, to do it. I'm like, so what? Learn how to program a Wattlow? Learn. You know what I mean? Learn. You know, It's like you know, you know how to drive a car. You can't, can't program my oven. You know what I mean? That was my uh, attitude. But this one, one of my things was, A, it had to look like a normal oven. So it couldn't have wires and stuff sticking out of it. Fine. And it turns out I really didn't need a lot of control on the super high end for pizza because it just needs to be freaking hot. Right,
4: exactly, and so it and then it's well, is it in there for a minute or a minute and a half,
2: yeah, right. yeah, so so the simplest uh method was to hell with it and just literally put. A, uh, a ball valve bypass onto onto the thermostat, and then when it's you know when it's horizontal, I just tell people not to touch that. And it's a normal oven until I turn it into into you know uh, you know flame on mode, and then it's and then it's just you know in real thermal runaway, not like the puny thermal runaway that you use on your 500 degree thermostat thermal runaway. I'm talking like thermal run away. It doesn't actually run away. It doesn't melt itself into an ingot, but it gets close. It's like yeah. you know up. Uh, it's actually too. Hot, it gets up to 900. I have to throttle it, but anyway, back to the frying problem. So, with my ridiculously high output range, right, I still can't get as good a frying uh, in a normal pot situation because I just can't get the surface area contact with the oil in the pan. To have it not abuse... Uh, I mean, I get slightly better results in a wok because I have a larger surface area for it to hit. Of course, the oil degrades because it's against a, uh, a non-stainless wok. My wok's not stainless, so the oil degrades quickly there. You can't win, you know what I mean? But uh, it would be interesting. I'm sure you could win better if you had uh, a control app that was taking it up to the brink of being destroyed, and then, but not, like, over. Because it, yeah. in, in general, 100% of the time when I watch Cook's uh, try to fry on a range. Um, they over, they jack it too high to get the recovery rate, which I understand, but it always goes too far over the line, and there's a kind of a porpoise effect with the temperature where it goes over and then under, and I think people underestimate how much physical abuse the oil is taking during each cycle of overheating along with, like, salt and flour and burnt particles that are in that. It's just Absolutely. like...
4: Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and going back to what I was saying before, that's why we we bias our algorithms to, to avoid overshooting. So we... You know, talking about about frying things all night. So, uh, back in May, sort of to thank uh, a bunch of our Kickstarter supporters, we had a, a Cinco de Meld party, and we were making tortilla chips uh, on it on a burner very much like this, but with butane, uh, <laughs> all, all night long, and and we're able to you know to keep that level of control. And you know, was was there some degradation in the oil? You know, three hours later, yeah, of course. But um, you know, but but. Those chips were still good.
2: Yeah, and by the way, fun fact about tortilla chips, for those of you out there who make tortilla chips, you should, first of all, you should make your own tortilla chips. They're, you, absolutely. They're a thousand times, and I'm not talking about, I mean, you should also learn to nixtamalize things, but that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, just go buy the crappy maseca, not that they're crap, but you know what I'm saying, maseca fresh tortillas and fry them up because they're thicker and they're crunchier, that's the way I like it. You know what I mean? And they're cheap as hell. Yeah. So cheap. But... Um, the true fact about tortillas is that uh, they're, they're going to absorb a lot of oil. That's how they're supposed to work. That's what they do. Yeah. So you don't need to go French fry temperature when you're cooking a tortilla. People overheat their oil when they're doing tortillas on a regular basis. In fact, next time you make tortillas, I want you to do this. I want you – potato chips, the same thing. People go over temp on their potato chips because really, really you're, when you're frying a French fry, you have a crust and an interior – Right? Right. So you need to fry at a temperature that maintains the crust without shafting the interior. Gets, that's why it needs to be so high. Whereas in a tortilla chip or a potato chip, you're making a nice crunchy thing, but it is entirely the crust. And you're, what you're doing is a moisture removal operation. That's right. And so to do moisture removal, which is actually tough on oil, frankly, you know what I mean? Especially with cycling, thermal cycling. The next time you start tortilla chips, I want you to start your first batch in cold oil. Just like you would for a potato chip batch. And, and and you will not be able to tell the difference between that batch and the batch that started in hot oil. Why? Because tortilla chips are going to absorb oil, period. It, it, it's going to happen.
4: It's going to go in all the spots where the water used to be that you're getting rid of.
2: Right. And any sort of... Uh, like intermediate absorption you might get when you throw a tortilla chip into locally cooled oil is going to be blasted out by the tremendous water evaporation you're going to get as soon as the local temperature of the oil around the tortilla chip gets above the boiling point of water. I guarantee it. it, it don't take my word for it. Go cook some tortillas. You know what I mean?
4: yeah the the uh the water evaporation thing is is a really interesting point more generally too it's that you know as we've been been playing with this and and kind of understanding how it works and looking at the feedback loops you know a lot of uh, a lot of cooking techniques are really all about uh the heat being sucked out by the evaporation of water right so you know raising a gram of water one degree takes a calorie but but uh, boiling it off takes 540. So um, essentially when you're, when you're cranking up the heat to maintain temperature uh, you are in almost all cases doing that to compensate for it being sucked out by evaporation and understanding that then as the, you know, as you stop seeing the bubbling and, and, and all the steam coming off uh, and then you watch as the knob is dialing back, it, you know, it doesn't see the steam, but it, but it's uh it's encountering the same thermodynamics, uh, you realize, you know, that's what it's really all about um for a lot of a lot of cooking techniques. And then the um you know controlling those and and do getting to the right temperature and recovering and so on. Um to your point about, you know, you you watch cooks do it at home and they porpoise, they go up and down. Um, we saw the exact same thing. So when we very first started down the road that, that eventually became Meld, the first thing we, we looked at was, well, what if we could sense the temperature in a pot and pan in any of various ways and transmit that to an app, and then people could look and say, oh, it's too hot, it's too cold. Whatever. And so we'd give people, you know, pretty good cooks, the, the simple task of bring this pot to this particular temperature and they 'd try and do it, and they 'd go up and they 'd overshoot and they 'd dial it back and they 'd undershoot and they 'd and go back and forth twenty minutes later they 'd say all you 've done is you 've told me i 'm a terrible cook you haven 't <laughs> given me any tool to do anything about it and that 's where then the knob came we said okay we 've got to actually get the kind of feedback loop and get the kind of control. Uh, that you get in sous vide, and and why is it that we're still out there, you know, following recipes that say put a pot on medium, when that means, you know, what that means on your stove and what it means on mine could be two hundred degrees apart.
2: Right. Well, though, yeah, those kind of recipes that say things like like the ones that are hilarious are the gas mark recipes where they actually whatever it's supposed to mean something in the UK. I don't know, but um, yeah, I mean, like you still the, the, the issue is is that recipes like that are still written assuming that kind of we're all a community of cooks and we know what we're talking about you know what i mean which is not always the case when someone's in fact i, I mean i wish i had some time yeah, that, well, you know what uh, yeah, jack he, we're gonna yeah. have to do a catch-up episode yeah let's do one because I, ne- I have i didn't get to any of the written questions i want to talk about breaking down chickens yes because you know that I, I was had someone over my age didn't know how to break down a chicken we gotta go though Uh all right, listen, and I want to talk about scythes. I learned about scythes. You know the the tool scythe, like Fear the Reaper, for cutting down wheat. Yeah, they're freaking amazing. I looked at it. This is a joke. Who the heck wants a scythe? It's. A, I need to go get a, a, a you know a, a weed whacker or something. Amazing pieces of equipment, but I can't talk about it now uh, because we have to go. But uh, thank you, Darren, from Mel, for coming in, showing us this yeah, uh, piece of equipment. Thanks for me. Uh, we'll do a catch-up episode. Cooking issues
3: for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org.